Hello and welcome to episode 98 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today we head back to March 2010 to a marriage that had lost its sparkle and temptation was all around. This case was brought to my attention by listener Emma Connor. Thank you so much, Emma. It's a really interesting story. Before we begin, I would like to thank all my supporters on Patreon, but especially my new supporters. That's Sarah Carroll, Pamela Sullivan, Henley, Darrell Cole, Kelly Vincent, David Costa, Zoe Liddell, Joanne, and Vegas Runaway, who increased her pledge. Thank you all so much for your support, and it still isn't too late to suggest the content for episode 100. So let's add some context to today's story. What were we listening to in March 2010? Number one in the UK charts was Lady Gaga featuring Beyonce with Telephone. Lady Gaga was also in the charts at 21 with Bad Romance. Which could be an interesting, if somewhat controversial, choice of song for a first dance at a wedding. The US top spot was filled by the Black Eyed Peas with Imma B. In the Australian charts this year, the top three albums were from Pink, Eminem and friend of the show Susan Boyle with I Dreamed a Dream. I've got to pick a case soon that ties in with another old favourite from Australia. Daryl, of course, with the awesome Horses. We'll get the gags lined up in advance. So on to the news headlines. This was the month when two female suicide bombers hit the Moscow subway system at the height of rush hour, killing 40 people. In the UK, Chester City Football Club, bottom of the Blue Square Premier League, went out of business after 125 years, less than a year after being relegated from the Football League, where they'd spent all but four seasons since 1931. In true crime news, John Venables, one of the two boys then aged 11, found guilty of murdering James Bolger in 1993, was recalled to prison after breaching the terms of his life licence. I don't know about you, but even now I struggle to read the details of this horrendous case. Melsonby is a small village in North Yorkshire, in the northeast of England, with a population of around 1,500. It is around 60 miles north of the home of football, Leeds, and 25 miles west of Middlesbrough. In the heart of beautiful countryside, it is a quiet place with a very attractive, sleepy pace of life, which, well, it wasn't accustomed to the glare of publicity. In fact, until the events that I described today, the biggest event in the village that year was the annual duck race. It was almost seven weeks later that Diana's family gathered outside the village store, waiting for her coffin to arrive. After the hearse pulled up, the family walked slowly behind as the vehicle made the short journey to St James's Church. Hundreds of friends and villagers, about 300, were already inside. The vicar told the packed church that he'd been asked many times in recent weeks about the small village's reaction to the violent death of Diana Garbutt. His reply was always the same, bewilderment. The vicar said the service was a time to give thanks for her life, adding it was also a chance to comfort one another in the hour of need. He described Diana as a special person who had touched so many lives. Going back to the day that Diana's body was found, 
Her husband, Robin, aged 44, told police what had happened that terrible day. As normal, he opened his shop around 4.30am and when he opened the post office part of the business at 8.30am, he was confronted by a masked raider. The armed robber looked directly at Robin and told him, we've got your wife, before demanding cash from the safe. In a panic, Robin quickly opened the safe and the masked man held open a holdall whilst Robin emptied the large amount of cash into the bag. After the man left, Robin rushed up the stairs to find his wife dead in bed with massive head injuries, blood soaked all through the mattress and the sheets. She'd been beaten severely. Robin immediately dialed 999 telling operators, My wife's been attacked. She's got a funny colour. There's blood on the pillow. A week on, the police were no closer to finding the masked man responsible for Diana's death. In a statement released through North Yorkshire Police, Robin said, The past week has been extremely difficult and traumatic for me. Di was my life and I'm lost without her. I would like to express my gratitude for the support of my family, friends and the police. I now ask that the media respect my privacy. Detective Superintendent Lewis Raw said that officers would remain at the post office today and were expected to continue their forensic examinations and searches over the Easter weekend. He said, House-to-house inquiries will also continue. The investigation is very complex and it will take some time to complete all avenues of investigation. We again express our thanks to the residents of Melsenby for their patience and understanding. Following her daughter's death, Dinah's mum said she was content. She loved her life. She didn't deserve to be taken like this. Nobody does. But she, of all people, did not deserve to be taken this way. Police started to delve into the lives of the couple. They'd married in April 2003 and moved to Melsenby from York to start a new life in a new business. Diane grew up in the village of Egborough in North Yorkshire and had been very physically active in her younger years and joined the army before becoming a court security official. Her dad was a sergeant in the US Air Force and she remained very close to her elderly American grandma. Before the move to Melsonby, Robin Garbutt worked the exceptionally long hours expected of an outsider as the managing director of a York family firm and the couple chose to buy a business together so that he wasn't working all the time and they could see more of each other. Although the couple worked exceptionally hard running a post office, as you probably know you have to, they also indulged themselves. For example, spending expensive weekend breaks at top-class hotels, which raised some questions locally about how they could afford such extravagance. But hey, envy's everywhere, isn't it? Some speculated, however, that the reason they could afford these treats was due to an incident a year before Diana's death, when the post office was again targeted by armed robbers. This time the thieves stole over £10,000, but nobody was ever arrested, and nobody except Robin saw anything that raised suspicion. And now this second attack in just 12 months, this time resulting in not just money stolen, but the murder of Diana. Was it the same culprit? If it was someone else, 
it seemed pretty bad luck for such a small rural operation to be targeted twice. Or maybe, as some suspected, maybe everything Robin was telling them wasn't strictly true. As detectives went deeper, what they found raised concern. The marriage actually appeared to be crumbling, on the verge of finishing, and the couple were heavily in debt. It appeared that Robin had stolen thousands of pounds from the post office, and he knew he was about to be exposed when a relief postmaster took over while the couple took a holiday in the US. The couple had £30,000 in credit card debts, and the post office, although it had been for sale for almost five years, there was no hint of a serious buyer, and the few assets that they had were all in Diana's name. This meant that if the marriage did result in a split, Robin would be left with little to show for his thousands of hours behind the counter, mostly alone, while his bored wife busied herself with her own projects away from the shop. Diana was no longer interested in this rather mundane life, and she wanted more. Although Robin told detectives that he did not mind how the work was shared between them, it was a business they both owned, but he did admit to a little frustration occasionally, and he did once tell her to get off her fat ass and help. They also found that Diana had been involved with other men on at least three occasions, and was active on Facebook, and also accessed her profile on the Badoo dating site the night before she died, where she flirted and tried to arrange dates. Diana was bored of her life and her husband, and it was made worse for her by the fact the couple really had sex. This was a problem for Diana, who had a much stronger sex drive than her husband. Detectives found that Diana had admitted to Robin that she'd had sex with a man at a party in York in December 2008, while her husband slept upstairs. The couple were staying with friends at a house shared by another man, John Inningworth. After going out separately, John told police how he ended up on the sofa with Diana after her male friend and Robin had gone to their beds. He continued, Me and Diana were downstairs together. We were intimate on the city. It was very cloudy because we were both very drunk. I remember her saying, Whatever you are doing, you really have to stop this because of Robin. She made it very clear. But the couple did have sex, and Diana told her husband what had happened and phoned John to tell him. When he heard that her husband knew, John asked her if he should expect a visit from her husband. I would have thought he would be very angry, John said, to which Diana replied, Robin's not like that. He's not physical. Diana also kissed the husband of a cousin at a family party in Wales. This man was forced to ring Robin about the encounter after his wife found out and made him confess. She later wrote the man a note saying that she felt she was living in some fantasy world that I have created and totally indulged in. She continued, I thought your marriage was doomed and mine too and that we were not hurting anyone and what we had was special. But now I know that your marriage is not doomed and what I thought was special is really a continuation of your last relationship. I feel I've been part of something seedy and I think we should just have time out and be friends. I'll always be here to talk with you. Anything sexual should be off limits.
But she did say that if his marriage did not work out, we can maybe start over without the emotional baggage. And after the man confessed and his wife made him tell Robin, he told detectives of Robin's reaction. From what I remember, he said, What are you talking about? And then, Let's leave it at that. There was also the flirtatious contacts on Facebook with a villager, Craig Hall, with whom she went out for late night cycle rides when Robin was asleep. They would discuss their sexual fantasies. Danny used to ask the man about his divorce and discuss her own private life. He denied they had a physical relationship, but he said how Diana had told him her marriage was going through a rough patch and her husband was considering paying for her to rent somewhere to stay. He said she was quite happy, but not with everything, particularly the sex. Robin was just not interested in it. I think I said, if my wife had your interest in sex, I don't think we would have got divorced. But he added, I wouldn't say it was flirty, our relationship. It was just cheeky banter. Detectives found the shop bank account was overdrawn, as was Robin's own personal account. Although the village store was on the market for £450,000, a price which would have enabled Robin and Diana to clear their debts, there had been little interest in over five years. Analysis by the police showed the couple had an income of less than £20,000 in the year 2009-10. Yet Robin was still depositing large sums of cash in his various accounts and splashing out on expensive holidays and luxury breaks, including a four-night stay at the Devonshire Arms in North Yorkshire, which cost over £1,200. They returned to the hotel and spa the following month for a three-night break costing over £800. The couple went on five other breaks together in 2009, including trips to Amsterdam, Paris, Northumberland and York, and were due to go to a three-week trip to the US the week after the murder. Hotels in San Francisco, Beverly Hills and Vegas had been booked, and they paid more than £3,000 for the trip at the time of Diana's death. Detectives felt there could be only one explanation. Robin Garbutt was stealing from the post office to fund a lifestyle his wife wanted, but he could not afford. Detectives now strongly suspected that Robin killed his wife due to the money problems and the fact that they were likely to split, leaving him next to nothing for all his hard work. They felt the catalyst was their upcoming holiday and the relief postmistress arriving to look after the business when his fraud was sure to be discovered. And the suspicions that he had killed his wife seemed to be confirmed by the forensics. Robin had reported that his wife had been killed at around about 8.30am, but when paramedics arrived, they found blood had matted in her hair and they found that rigor mortis had already set in. And analysis of the semi-digested remains of the fish and chips she'd eaten the previous evening showed that she had died between 2am and 4.30am, whereas Robin had said she died sometime around 830 The other alternative based on the evidence was that a robber or robbers were prepared to violently kill a woman sleeping in her own bed, but then, having done so, to wait for four to six hours before going downstairs to rob the post office, and then having waited for that length of time to leave Robin unharmed and unrestrained to raise the alarm. It sounds highly unlikely, 
doesn't it? Detectives believe that Robin Garbutt hit his wife three times over the head with a metal bar in her bed in the living quarters in the early hours of March 23rd, 2010. He then opened the shop as normal and served around 60 customers before closing again and dialing 999. They found it hard to believe that Robin was capable of murder, even as police listened again and again to his emergency call with his softly spoken voice, his slight speech impediments, and he talked of his wife's gin jams as he called the operator Honey in a very homely voice. But they also firmly believed that the armed robbery a year earlier, whether it was genuine or fake, had put the idea into his mind and that killing Diana seemed the only way out of his predicament. And the jury at Teesside Crown Court rejected Robin Garbutt's story that a raider with a gun told him, don't do anything stupid, we've got your wife, before robbing him as he worked, and that moments later he discovered his wife's body in bed. Garbutt shook his head as he was convicted by the jury of eight men and four women by a majority of ten to two. His sister clapped in tears as the verdict was announced, and Diana's mum, Agnes, also wept. The panel had been deliberating for nearly 13 hours. The judge, Justice Openshaw, sentenced Garbutt to life in prison and told him he would serve a minimum of 20 years. He said that Garbutt's lies had been exposed and that he'd shown no remorse over his wife, adding, he has always accompanied his lies with sanctimonious lies of his love for her. By their verdict, the jury have exposed this as pure humbug. This was a brutal, planned, cold-blooded murder of his wife as she lay sleeping in bed. Outside court, Diana's mum, Agnes, said, I'm not thinking about Robin now. I'm not going to let Robin enter my head after today. And in a statement read on her behalf, she said, Diana meant the world to us and we are still struggling to come to terms with what happened to her on that awful day. We loved her with all our hearts. Our loss is simply unbearable. Speaking after the verdict, Detective Superintendent Lewis Raw, the senior investigating officer, said, It is satisfying that we've been able to secure justice for Diana Garbutt and her family in this most tragic and distressing of cases. As for Robin Garbutt, he has shown himself to be a calculating and deceptive individual who attempted an elaborate cover-up after he violently ended his wife's life as she lay asleep in bed. His actions that morning not only killed Diana, they also devastated the lives of Diana's family and plunged a small close-knit community into fear. That he did not have the decency to admit his guilt from the outset and therefore spare Diana's family the pain of reliving the tragic events in full during a trial demonstrates the type of selfish and deluded individual that Robin Garbutt really is. Robin and his family still protest his innocence. They point to issues with the evidence, such as the lack of blood on Robin. A witness who supposedly heard Diana talking to Robin at 6.45am, hours after police believed she was murdered. And an iron bar which was supposedly the murder weapon, which didn't have traces of Robin's DNA. I'm not convinced by their arguments at all, but Google the website and take a look, see what you think. 
In the last update post in March this year, his website states the following. Yesterday marked the 8th anniversary of the armed robbery at Melsonby Post Office, which led to the horrific murder of Robin's beloved wife Diana. There isn't a day which passes without Robin looking at the ring on his wedding finger and asking, why did they have to kill her? Of course, Robin is in Franklin Prison after a terrible miscarriage of justice placed him there. Even though we've amassed a large amount of new evidence, we still keep hitting the brick wall of the CCRC, who at this stage are making every excuse not to allow Robin back to the Court of Appeal. Hopefully, next month will take us a step nearer. Robin would like to thank everyone for their continued support and still can't believe the never-ending kindness shown by so many people after all this time. So there, make of his thoughts as you will. As regular listeners will know, I'm also intrigued by what happens to pets, of course, no pets in this case, but also to the property. In this case, the property was bought by Diana's mum in 2014 for £140,000, who said that she intended to finish off work on the kitchen started by her daughter before her death. But just this month, September 2018, the property is back on the market for a guide price of £325,000. I wonder if you'd buy it. I'm not sure that I would. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Was it the breakup of his marriage to Diana? Or was it the financial ruin he faced, which led Robin to kill his wife? Or was it a combination of the two? Once more in this podcast, what a waste of a young life that leaves us wondering again what else Diana could have achieved. Like me, don't you wonder why she didn't just leave him and start a new life either alone or with someone who more closely shared her aspirations in life, who wanted the same things of her? Another familiar theme in this story is that we just never know what is really going on with other people. Surely it yet again shows us how wrong it is when we feel envious or we judge others by the public image they like to portray, which usually has just the smallest tenuous connection with the reality. In this case, friends and neighbours came forward to speak of their shock at the fate of this seemingly perfect couple. In the end, I reckon you should just do you I should just do me, and we'll do that to the best of our ability, don't you think? But as we leave this story, friends and relatives of Diana mourn their loss, and friends and many of Robin's supporters still cling to the hope of his release. What a sad story all round. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Please come and talk about this case or any other aspect of UK True Crime at the Facebook group, which has today passed the 1500 member mark. Yeehaw! Or to support the show with 154 others, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where for the price of a dodgy pint of lager, you can access 19 full bonus episodes, soon to be 20 this week, plus other exclusive content. So until we speak again next week, remember... Everything is everything, except for some things, which aren't everything. I call them nothing. And on that bombshell, I am out of here for today. So until we speak again next week, it's cheerio from me. 
stay classy.